Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire Real Estate Agent Podcast. I'm Jason Abrams, and this is the place where we lift the curtain on the world of real estate like never before. Every week, I sit down with visionaries, pirates, and mavericks. We're here to document, demonstrate, and most importantly, demystify their game-changing models and systems. What secrets propel them to the top, and how are they living their dreams? This is about passion, it's about strategy, but above all, it's about real, tangible success. So buckle up and let's dive in. This is the Millionaire Real Estate Agent Podcast. You ever have people in your life that are inspirational to you, that you don't just hear them, but you feel what they're saying, and it helps you become a better version of yourself. If you don't, then get ready because you're about to. Today, we're spending time with Kimber Lovett Menkiti. Kimber is an amazing mom, an amazing business person, and above all else, an amazing friend to the entire real estate industry. From humble beginnings as a social worker to joining the real estate industry in 2007 to becoming not just a top agent, but a top leader in one of the nation's largest franchises. Here's what I learned about Kimber. She has more to tell you than any one podcast can ever cover, but I did my best. So hang on, buckle up and get ready for Kimber Lovett Menke. Hey everybody, today I'm joined by Kimber Lovett Menkidi. Kimber, how are you? I'm doing great, Jason, how you doing? I am fantastic, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, I'm excited for this conversation. So we could literally spend the next complete hour just drawing your world because it, it is massive from market center ownership, which if you're not in the Keller Williams system, that's brokerage ownership to actually running a multi-state conglomerate to having one of the largest teams in the D.C. area to running a giant family. Kimber, how many children do you have? We have four amazing boys, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> so, right. So this is a giant world that you're living. I want to go back and unpack all of it. And in order to do that, I, I want to talk about kind of your origin story when it comes to being an entrepreneur. How did we end up here today? Because very few people wake up and say, I want to own 11 successful businesses. Was that you from the jump or did you just kind of grow into this? Yeah, not at all, right? Like, so both my parents are an educator. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a firefighter, right? So I, of course, was like, there's no way I'm going into public service. I'm going to be a social worker, right? This is my high school brain. I'm not going to be either of those things. Um, I'm going to help people in a different, completely different way. So my background, right? I got, have a degree, have an undergraduate degree in social work. Uh, and then I went straight in and got a double master's in law and social policy uh, and a master's in social work. Cause I was like, I'm going to help people on the broad scale of like, I write how systems and policies impact how people can live and, and function in the United States. And so that kind of was the beginning. And that brought me to Washington, DC. And, wh and where did you go to undergrad? Uh, I did undergrad at James Madison University in Virginia. I'm a Virginia girl, so born and raised in Virginia. And then I moved to Pennsylvania and did my master's um, in Pennsylvania. So in none of that did I hear the study of entrepreneurialism. Yet it no. seems that that underpinned the majority of, of your working life. So you come out of school with, with all of these higher ed degrees. And, and do you actually then become a social worker? I did. So I did my master's um, thesis on girls exiting the foster care system. and 
it surprised me, although it wouldn't surprise any right of folks that are in the housing world, that the number one challenge for kids exiting foster care was housing, right? So that was sort of the first like little like nugget of like, oh, okay, this housing thing is, it literally permeates everything that we do in our world. What, what do you mean by that? When you say that was their number one problem, meaning they didn't have anywhere to live or that the Absolutely. houses they were being placed in weren't up to, to par? Right. Well, think about it. you're you're a child. Often, if you're a girl in the foster care system, you likely like it's a vicious cycle, right? Because you maybe were brought into the foster care system at some point. You probably, unfortunately, like the stat statistics that you're going to have had a child while you're in the system, and so now you're being aged out of the system. Oftentimes, opening a case for your kids now to be in the system, and so the number one challenge for them to kind of keep their families intact was that they didn't have anywhere to go that there wasn't enough housing, right? From this affordable housing issue, just to like even stable, consistent housing. So housing, after I did all this research for right an entire semester of like how we could help these, these, these girls, young women, it was actually housing was at the crux of, if you could create stable, safe housing, that their success rates just went through the roof to be able to then rebuild their lives. So it was just sort of that first nugget of like the power that housing has at every level of our society. Cool. So you 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 prove that, and then now you're doing that in real life. So what what, what do you learn while you're doing that? While you're interacting with all these people? Yeah, I mean, so I started in real estate in 2007, which was a really fun year. I feel like some, there's some pretty amazing people who get started right around that time, right as the bottom. Right, the, we've just seen the rise, not unlike maybe what we've seen the last couple of years. And then all of a sudden, right, like the bottom falls out, and I jump in the business right then. I'm I'm have. But why do you jump in? I um. I'm actively doing social work, right? So I'm, I'm working at uh, actually for the Archdiocese of Washington in DC and sort of helping uh, run crisis management for all 108 schools in the district. And Bo, right, Bo and I had just gotten married a year before. Bo starts in real estate and really like does this little sabbatical from we, we meet in the nonprofit world. We're both right going to save the world through through education. We meet in the nonprofit world. Bo gets a three, three week sabbatical, takes his real estate exam and is off and running as a dual career agent selling, becoming rookie of the year at Cole Banker sells a bunch of houses, looks up and says, this is actually like not better than a part-time business. Like we could have some big impact through this real estate thing. Uh, so two years in, opens the very first Keller Williams in Washington, D.C. We're, we're 26 and 28, right? I don't know what you guys were thinking. Somehow Keller Williams thought it was a good idea to sell uh, sell the very first franchise in Washington, D.C. to like these 20-year-olds, one that wasn't in real estate at all, and one that had been doing real estate for two years. Unbelievable. Not a bad bet, right? Well, it turns out that it was one of the best bets the company ever made. It wasn't a bad bet. You know, he walked into the local Long and Foster as a dual career agent. Was like, I want to affiliate here. They they had dominant market share in our area, and they were like, Yeah, we don't take dual career agents. Um, it's just often a joke we remind them of often today. <laughs> they turned they turned us right around, and we're like, well, You need to go find somewhere else to to start this journey. So we, yeah, so we do real estate. We're, we've opened in the DC office, and so I jump in dual career that summer as well, thinking like, Hey, it's the summer. You know, I got a little less to do when the kids are at school. Uh, we don't have kids yet in our own, but I was working in the school system, and so I jumped in and got my real state license and and also jumped in dual career because Bo was going to go focus on building the market center. And I was going to focus on uh, taking over this real estate team that had started and kind of evaporated when we built the market center. So talk to me about dual career, because so many people find the real estate industry while they're working in another one. But that poses some really interesting challenges that don't get talked about very often. 
Absolutely. It's why I always remind people in our origin story into real estate that we were both dual career. Uh, we both started that way. And really, it means like you're working a very full-time job. So when I took my real estate class, I was taking it at night, right? It was from like 7 to 11 p.m. at night and then all day, like three Saturdays. So you were you know, getting all those hours in in our local jurisdiction. And so, yeah, so then I would work a full day. I would take my lunch. I'd be like returning calls to clients on the weekends, evenings, right? Like, just talk about efficiency. You're doing you're doing a lot, and that's what I think a lot of our dual careers are are some of our most successful agents start out that way because you have to really balance your time in a fierce way when you're leading a full time job and then also building a real estate career on the side. Was it the, was it the pursuit of the almighty dollar? Because it, it, by all accounts, you 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 are working in what you've been educated and trained in. You're changing lives through that system. Then you decide to come into the real estate business, admittedly to change lives a different way. What was the why, though, that got you to be willing to work on your lunch break to do it? Well, I think more broadly, like you saw this gap, right? We were both in the nonprofit space and you saw this ability to like have a big vision and see an impact, but be limited because of the financial resources, right? That we watch nonprofits all the time who are doing amazing work, but really can't sustain that work or extend that work or scale it because they they can't they haven't figured out an economic model. So we kind of stumbled into this idea of social entrepreneurship, this idea that you could do well and do good, that you could build a big business that could have a big impact and then thereby really really have sustained impact in communities. So I think this sort of, you know, 20-year-old idealism that like we were going to come in and we were really going to transform lives, careers, communities through real estate like became this really powerful powerful vehicle and we really anchored. I saw that, right? Like I bought my first house I think I was I was one of those very first clients. We weren't even uh, we weren't married yet. I was 22. I had just like I'm in graduate school. I'm working full time. My best friend and I buy this little this little row house in Washington D.C. We pay one hundred and eighty thousand dollars for it, and it felt like like literally like took my breath away. Like think, signing these documents. Like what the hell are we? Can I say that? What are we doing? What are <laughs> we doing that we're going to buy this house? And you know the story for me is like a transformative story. So two years later, uh, we sell that house. We double, right? So we both were, we, I'm, she's a speech therapist. I'm a social worker, right? And we make more on the sale of that house between the two of us than both of us had made that entire year for our salaries. Oh my gosh. It allows her to go back and complete her master's degree. It allowed me to invest in our, in the business, right? So I invested all of it back into the business and helps us grow the business. And then very tragically, right? We were 20, right? So we sell the house, she gets to buy another house, does these really cool things. And she invests part of it. She goes back to grad school, part of it, she invests in our company uh, that's growing, right? Our Minkiti Group Enterprise. And so she wakes up one morning and collapses on the way to school. She was uh, working at a school and dies later that evening of a pulmonary embolism at 30 years old, my best friend. And this real estate asset, right? Her mom, she's the only child, has become an asset that her mom continues to get dividends from today, right? Over, you know... If almost 15 years later. And so you just look at the power of real estate to both transform what she got to pursue her wildest dreams at that period of time, and now had an asset that continues to be a legacy for her mom. Do you hear that story? Do you hear the power of investment real estate? I know that sounds kind of funny because we're making it sound like a holy calling at the moment. But friends, for the person who Kimber just told you about, it was. 
And I take umbrage with every one of these internet YouTube sensations that would have you believe that owning real estate and investing in real estate is somehow a bad idea. That's the dumbest, most patently absurd thing I've ever heard. As a matter of fact, when I look at residential real estate agents and I'm faced with the fact that less than 8% of agents own at least one piece of investment real estate, it burns me to my core. Friends, true wealth is made by owning a business and investing in assets that go up in value and throw off positive cash flow, i.e. real estate. I would submit to you that if you're a real estate professional within the sound of my voice, the number one thing you should be investing in is more real estate. Think about what you just heard. If she hadn't had that asset, she may have been leaving nothing. You see, not investing in real estate when you're a real estate professional is completely backwards to me. It doesn't make any sense. It defies logic. Remember the rules of money. Invest in things you know. Friends, you know real estate. And investing in it, you gotta do it. Just go start now. Because the biggest mistake you'll make is you'll say, well, I'll wait until I have more money. Or I'll invest when. Change that to, I'm investing tomorrow. Now, how do I get started? What would that original row house be worth today? Oh, man, you're telling me it's about $650,000. Well, and that's the thing about the right piece of real estate over time always goes up. That's what all always. the data shows us. So yep. I want to go back to this concept that you, you, could, you could do good in a community by owning this thriving real estate business within it. And there's so many teams and, and agents now that are carrying that mission. I think of like Coalition Property Group who wake up every day thinking about that for their community. 100%. Did it turn out to be true or did it just sound good in your 20-year-old mind? Because it sounds yeah. great in my 20-year-old mind. It does. I think part of what was powerful is that it allowed us to build a very successful hyper-local business. And so when I you fast forward, even over the next 10 years, right, we have three boys in that period of time. We really drilled down into the sales business. We got to work in this community. We got to live in this community. We got to invest in this community. And so it did. I mean, you look at that today and it's a it's a neighborhood that for better or worse, right? Had lots of bumps in terms of like, as communities are developing, particularly urban neighborhoods and as they're transforming, for us anchoring that in the power of home ownership and people to have equity, be able to be participating in this, this really gentrification that was happening across our city. Um, so it, it's been beautiful. And then taking that today is a model that, you know, we've been able to expand around the country in different, if, different neighborhoods from a development perspective. But I think I think it was like, I think that sometimes we want to go all over the place and there's lots of agent businesses that do great kind of covering a big footprint for us. It, it matched with the life that we were building, right? Being able to be very deep in a community, very deep from a aspect of like events and community service and how we were able to give back and really understanding the assets, even planning for how businesses come into the neighborhood. I look around and when I drive around that neighborhood today, I feel like our DNA of a, of a little real estate team that had a big vision is all over it. You know, I, I was reading the other day and it said that less than 8% of residential real estate agents own at least one investment property. Yes. And I, I was thinking about that and that, that seems so bizarre to me. If I said it differently, if I said less than 8% of everyone who owns a car dealership owns a car, you'd be like blown away. That can't be right. That can't but be right. We, but we accept this idea for real estate agents. Why do you think real estate agents, and I guess I'll take it more broad, why do you think more people aren't buying investment real estate? 
I think it's even more uh, interesting when you think about real estate agents because they understand the asset class that they're transacting, right? Like they see a good deal. I think it's because we've become so transactional that you're chasing a transactional commission dollar as opposed to the deal. So I would watch agents all the time, right? Still today, call around and be like, oh my God, Jason, I got an amazing deal for you. That's gonna make you a couple hundred thousand dollars. And the only thing you have to do for me is let me sell it on the back end so I can double in the commission. And you look at that and you're like, so you just passed that guy an opportunity to make like more money than you might have netted all year on one transaction, but man, you got both sides of the deal. And I think one of our fundamental shifts was like, we started to say, well, no, we're going to participate in these deals as, as the equity, as the ownership, even if that meant like, right, inherently understanding your value, that your ability to identify and acquire property is value and not coming to that saying, hey, I want just a transaction. I actually want to be part of this deal. And I think when we start to own a little bit of that validity and opportunity, the, the table changes. Kimber is such a genius. Did you hear what she said? She said, that's about understanding your value. So whenever I talk about wealth, I'm always faced with this group of people in the room that don't raise their hand and say, I'm not worth it. But you know what? When you go through a seminar on building wealth or you hear a podcast on investing in real estate and then you make no changes in your life afterwards, for some of you, it's because you're not sure that you're worth it. And I want to assure you that you are. You see, when you think about wealth, here's what I know. There's three stages to it. Number one, security. I can pay my bills. I can get through the month. No problem. The next stage is the most dangerous of all, and it's called comfort. And what happens is you get into that stage and you can pretty much drive what you want to drive. You can eat out when you want to eat out and not have to look at the price on the menu. You can live in a house that you like living in and you can go on vacation a few times a year the way that you like to go. And generally, you're comfortable. Friends, being comfortable stops the upward surge in wealth acquisition more times than you could possibly count. You see, comfort sometimes leads us to stalled actions. The third stage of wealth is actually wealth. And here's the trick to getting there. Number one, you have to decide that you're worthwhile. Number two, you have to have a long-term wealth plan to get there. And number three, you got to do exactly what Kimber just said, which is make the decision that you're an active participant in your wealth journey. Friends, no one's going to advocate for you unless you do. Do you think that there's a part of people that don't believe that they deserve to own those deals or they don't believe that they're valuable enough to own an investment portfolio? Uh, I think it's value. I think it's understanding the risk, right? Like this idea that like somehow the person that does that has done so much more or has so much more resource. And the reality is we know it's risk, but you're a risk as an entrepreneur to get a real estate light. Like that'll, you already took a risk, right? You bet on yourself. Um, and then often like you look at this, if you're hyper local, like, you know, a deal when it shows up, you totally know a deal. Like, I mean, we, we called them like sort of like they would fall in, in your lap and we would have at least a handful of them every year where somebody just calls in and says, I'm done. I got to get rid of this property or my, something just happened in my life. And instead of picking up the phone to call that, you know, list of investors, you just you do it yourself. Like you're it. You're the person you bet on you. So I love that you bet on you. So when when you find deals, quote unquote, today. I'm assuming you don't know their deals until you've really analyzed it. So when when a lead comes into your organization, you're looking at it, it sounds like from a hierarchy perspective. And owning it or flipping it or doing those things come before listing it. Is that right? 
A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think some of that, again, is like getting confident that like this actually is the best opportunity. And what we started to see was like, I watched like, right, the guy in his car who comes in the Mercedes and wants to hand the lady, the old lady a check. And I'm like, is that the best deal for her? Like, no, like if you're, you're fair, you're providing an equitable, like you, this is a real value that you're providing to the, the property. I think when we're confident of that then you're just presenting options. And what we find, I mean, you see this, right, Jason, the data is like staggering how many people would actually choose to not have to just sell direct, right? Like we, and you see that from an open door, like, right, the the market that is, hey, just pick up the phone and sell your house. And you know, as an agent, you're providing a better service and value to that person than just the guy who's going to ride by on his, like, in his car and write her a, a below market check and then wholesale her deal. So it was part of that was understanding like, hey, you actually are the best option for this person. It feels like you have this epiphany early on that if you're going to do something, owning it or having equity in it is probably better than just getting a paycheck for it. Because when I think about all the different businesses you're involved in, you're kind of the owner of, of all of them, or you own pieces of all of them. What, what was that journey for you? Did you have a moment where you realized it? That's a great question. I mean, I do think that you start to realize like, what are you working towards? And that starts with the property, right? Understanding like ownership of property and you watch, like you just watch that. You see in our business, like real estate is the number one way that like wealth is created in our country. And so if you, under, that's an equity position. And so it's the same thing, I think when you translate that to business. Um, so I do think that that, we saw that really early on. And I think what what made a difference, I mean, right, Gary being an amazing teacher of this was like, not to adjust your lifestyle to the business you're creating, that the business is the business and your lifestyle is separate. And so because I think both we started out in the nonprofit world and we had salaries that combined were barely $100,000 and we kept that salary. We actually, right, so the, the income being generated from the business wasn't our personal lifestyle business. It wasn't like, oh, let's go buy another car. Let's buy a bigger house. Or, I mean, I like handbags, but like they were like, that had to start to be like a reward after something big happened. But then, then we had an income. And so that, I think, was one of our number one differentiators. Like, we stabilized our family's ability to, like, what we needed to live on so that when the business started to really generate resource, we were able to then invest in other businesses. And what we found was that the limitation, like, capital was such a limitation that when we could come to the table with capital or even just write a balance sheet that would allow us to get financing and that that we could then enter deals even ones that we weren't finding because we were just, we had managed our lifestyle in a way that allowed us to do that. Walk me through that process because it's easy to say we managed our lifestyle. It's even easier to say we live in a budget, but the the reality of it for a lot of people, those are really difficult things to do. H- how did you guys do it? Was it just a bunch of conversations at the kitchen table? Was it how you live? Did you all sit around and talk about your dreams? H- how did you get it done? Yeah. I mean, so realistically, like we we're not we're not very good budget people like that wasn't it. Right. The answer is that we didn't scale the lifestyle. So I think what happens a lot of times is even just something simple as like that you create an entity and an LLC, like we were paying ourselves a salary and we knew what we could earn or like live on because we already had been living on it. So we already knew what that number was. And then we just held the salary. So then it didn't feel like all of a sudden this business income showed up and you were like, wow, there's there's all this, we should take a big vacation. We should buy a better car, right? So that right from the beginning, and I think you can reset this because you know this for your life. A lot of us are experiencing this in the current market is like, what's the, what's the amount that we really need to live or that we know we can live on? And then set your family, like, because that's what you're going to pay yourself. That's it. You're going to pay yourself. The structure that you're an employee of your business and it's going to pay you amount for the work that you do. And then as an owner of the business, you're going to have a distribution, right? That's different. But then you can be much more intentional about how you program that money. 
So I think for us, it was that difference. Like we actually never adjusted with those that we never brought was still today, still today. Like sometimes I look at our taxes, I'm like, there's no way that that's right. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> but it's not right because our, that is separate from how we operate the business and like the business of our, of our household. Yeah, no, it, it actually makes perfect sense. You, it sounds like you're living plural lives. You're, you're living your home life and you've decided what you're going to pay yourself to do that. And you're living the best one you can, but you're also living this business life as big as you can. And it's pulled you, it sounds like, into multiple businesses. One of the questions I was going to ask you was, you keep opening up businesses and they all become successful. So why do you end up getting pulled into more businesses as you seem to be going? Well, I think one is being open to like, how are the things that that tie together, right? Like this is a big one. And I, I spoke about this recently at a, at a conference because I think a lot of broker operators think about like their one business, but they don't realize the value that they have of like being partners, whether that's a uh, an investment position or just like a revenue position in businesses that are generated through another asset. Does that make sense? So I think this idea of really understanding what are the the ties to the different businesses that you're part of and where can you actually be added to them, right? And be able to help build them up. And are there opportunities in that? So I do think it's really seeing the bigger things that your business touches. And you see that, right, from an agent business that maybe invest in a handyman service, right, or invest in something that you're sending a lot of business to at its most basic level. And then looking at not necessarily like we don't own a lot of our businesses 100 percent. I don't know that we own any of them 100 percent, right, because we it's about a who like can we invest in a person who and some of those don't always work. Right. We started a staging company. We closed it. It was not our thing. Right. Like not. And part of that was that we we probably like that business is still operating today. And we were like, let's jump into this. We've got a great operator. It wasn't long term. It didn't it wasn't the place where our energy and resource was best used. So I think thinking about where where those are and is there a who in your world that's connected to that opportunity that your platform or your business could help grow and develop and then that could create an opportunity. How do you pick which business you're going to do a morning huddle with or are you doing morning huddles with all of your businesses? I am doing two sets of morning huddles. Yeah, so I do it with um, the Minkiti team at 8.15 and then 8.30 with the regional team. And I want everybody to also then, then that gets replicated throughout the organization as our leaders start to do huddles with their own teams. Why is a morning huddle with your organizations every day? It seems like overkill to some. Why does that matter? I think it's critical. It's critical, especially because if you've got teams that are not like we have a pre-COVID world where maybe people were together. Most of my teams were not physically together. So it is the touch point. Not that I'm not talking to them at other points of the day. We still do one-on-ones. We have deep dives, but this is like high level. What are the top priorities? What does somebody need to know? What do we need to get done? What's the number? Sometimes these can be like just dumps of the schedule. That's, I don't think it's effective. It is like either you're using a specific cadence if you've got it, which I think like the 830 standup that a lot of team leaders are using or teams are using is great. We really focus on the top, top priority for the day and anything that you need from somebody else on the team to get get your stuff done. Cool. So now, hypothetically, by, by 9 a.m., you've worked out in some way, shape, or form. You've yep. gotten a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 3-year-old off into the world to live their mm-hmm. best lives. And you've kicked off every team for every company that, that you have thinking about what's most important that day. Not every team, but yes. But with my closest teams, you got it. And then well, those teams well, are modeled it. For the ones that you're not doing it, you've modeled it for all the other company. You got cool. it. Cool. Yep. So, you, by the way, you get done more before nine than I do all day. 
So uh, now it's nine. Have you had a cup of coffee yet in this whole experience? A thousand percent. I have like a whole, there's a whole nother like side of like how you hydrate. There's, a, I have a very, very specific food plan that also goes into all of that. I want to get there. So yeah. walk me through that. So are, are you, you're hydrating right when you wake up first thing? hundred percent. So I start with water first thing and then I go right, I go into coffee and then I do intermittent fasting. So I, that's, that's a very specific routine for me. So I go my coffee right with the MCT oil and then I, that rolls me through till about 12 or one. And then I do a one to eight eating window. And when, as soon as one o'clock hits, are you just ravenous? Are you just like, hey, I'll take any pizza you eat by yourself as a personal one. Is that when you order like a whole large? Oh, Jason. Yeah, this is Monday through Fridays, right? So I try to stay like my win is that the weekends can kind of go off the rails, but Monday through Friday, like, right? Yeah, so it's a pretty set set schedule. Perfect. So what do you do after nine o'clock? Yeah, so it depends on the day, right? Mondays are one-on-one days. So Monday and Tuesday are when we hit all the one-on-ones. So this is where you really deep dive with the leaders on your team. So for me, that is that is when I'm talking to everybody that is um, like, right, that, that are teams that I work directly in. So the market center team, the regional teams, and the sales team. Cool. What do you do then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if we're visiting, right? So getting into a market center, if there's teaching, again, like the schedule's pretty well set out. So if you've got, like, that's the time that I'm leaving for adding those schedules in. So I try to jump jam in all my meetings. What I found was that on Mondays before, like I would have sort of like one-on-one spread out throughout the week and it just wasn't ideal, right? We One, it's not letting everybody get focused and structured. This 411 cadence, we are a 411 crew. So like, what are the priorities? What does that look like? How are you advancing them? So it's a very structured one-on-one call. And then we're able to, one of the things I added last year, which I will never take off my schedule is uh, Friday afternoons is thinking time. Right. So I have a time block in Friday afternoons that is sort of I don't get I schedule meetings that I want to schedule. So I always say that to me when I'm meeting with agents or, or folks that I am coaching or consulting. and I put them in that block. I make sure that they know this is my open block. I only schedule the people that I want to meet with on Friday afternoons, the things I want to do. It's my thinking time. It's when we report the podcast for uh, Empire Builders. Like it is the time. And it's been amazing because before I was running through meetings until like five or six on Friday. And it just wasn't letting, like, you need that. As as a leader, I think it's critical that you build in white space and thinking time into your schedule. How long is that block on Fridays? After one o'clock. I don't do any meetings after one o'clock. Oh my gosh, I love that. That I don't want to do, I should say. Yeah, that you want to do, right. (laughs) I would turn to you after one o'clock on Jason. Oh, that's, I was just going to say, I'm so flattered. Kimber and I talk every Friday at two, and I didn't realize it was because you wanted to so bad. It was because I added you in. It's just an honor for me. At some point, kids, school starts finishing and sports starts happening. So does, does your day end at three o'clock to go do all those things? How do, how do you work that? Yeah. Uh, so we have help in the afternoons, right? That helps get the kids where they need to go. But we're, we're I've got, this is a big one for me, which, you know, I have a freshman in high school. And he has wanted his entire life to play football, which mom resisted. So I made a deal with a five-year-old that he could play in high school, thinking that that was really, really far away. But here we are. Um, And so he is playing football for the first time. And he's literally living his, like, five-year-old life dream. And so I've committed at the beginning of the year. I don't know for you guys, like, I don't know for you, Jason. Like, those years of, like, high school and college, like, you think of them fondly, but they went so fast. And I know they're going to go fast. And so I was like, I don't want to be, like, at his senior year. Like, I'm going to go to every senior year game because I missed all the rest of them. So I, I made a commitment that I'm going to be at every game and I'm going to like, I want to be present. It's really important to me to, for that experience. So yeah, so I scheduled all of those as we, as soon as we got the schedules in, we put everything on the calendar for the activities that I really, it's important for me to be part. Now I can't go to, you know, we have, you know, three hockey practices a week. Like we got, a, there's a lot with these 
awesome kids. I can't do all of those things, but I picked the things that are really important to them and important to me. And I also made that commitment. So he knows it. So I'm accountable to him, right? Because I don't, I'm like, hey, this is where I'm going to be. And this is what I'm committed to doing. So that does mean like, you know, tomorrow my day is going to end at four because I'm going to be on a football field for the rest of the afternoon before I fly to all. Like, right. I, I make the commitment of, of then have to say no to things to be able to say yes to the stuff that's most important. So yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't, they're definitely late nights uh, for work, but it's again, back to the schedule. So I put the things that are most important and that means I have to move things around. Like I, I had a, a late night call Friday. I was doing a, a later call on Friday, but I wanted to walk and pick my kids up from school. It's really important to me to do that. So I said to them like, hey, I could talk to you guys. It's going to have to be at 430 because I'm walking. But I said to them, I'm walking to pick my kids up from school because I committed to do that. And so I think sometimes as as we don't always like own, you don't have to tell everybody what you're all the things you're doing, but like that's an important appointment to me and I'm not going to miss it. Do you find that because you're so scheduled, because that's the only way to make all this work, that you've lost the spontaneity? And spontaneity sometimes leads to passion and these other things for people. Is that missing? Was it never there? Is it just not important for you? No wrong answer. No, I think it's why the Friday time came in. Like I had to schedule the spontaneity. <laughs> but I found that like in our business, it was tough, right? Because I, you know, I still have clients, like I still work with a couple clients. And when they're like, let's do this, or like, can you come and I, I don't have, there's not a lot of like, let's just go grab a two hour lunch on Wednesday because it's already scheduled. I'd be like, we could maybe do that in October. Um, like That's just the reality. So having that time on Friday that I could plug in, then it feels a little bit more like I have this spontaneous window that's not a standing scheduled meeting. For me, that was really, became really important. And then my weekends are relatively open. I mean, they're full of, full of kid time. But I, that's that's another time that sort of has that. So so yes and no, like you have to kind of schedule it. But when you're running multiple businesses and you're building leader, like that's just, that's it. What about a circle of friends? How do you honor having a circle of friends when you just said, look, weekends are kid time. How do you do that? Yeah, I do a lot of like, if I'm going to something, can someone come with me, right? So, you know, I took one of my girlfriends with me to a conference, right? And we had an extra day and like made it a fun time. I also like, I have an amazing circle of of friends in the Her Best Life world. My circle that started a whole business together that we get to do really cool things and have really big impact together. And that was really, that's been super transformative to my life. So I think one, we schedule those two, like those are scheduled out in terms of like, how are the times that that we're spending with the people we care about? When you think about that 10,000 foot schedule, you're putting that in the world. Are you having a girls weekend? Are you having date nights? Are you having, what are the things that are important to you that you're going to build out on the schedule? So from social work to changing communities to now to raising a big family, I want to talk about the word love for a minute because I'm listening to all this and it feels like all of it is underpinned by that word. I don't think you can be an effective social worker unless you love making change and you love the people you're trying to help. That's just my experience. It doesn't sound like you could build these type of businesses without loving the people that you're in business with. And you can't raise a 14, 11, 10, and three-year-old without a ton of love there. What have you learned about love on this journey that you can pass on? Oh, that's such a great question. I think you do at at its core, like, right? You have to, and this is why I think Quantum Leap is so powerful in terms of like, what's the why? Like, right, what, this business, like, we see amazing people get in who are actually hugely skilled and they exit, not because they didn't like, like weren't talented. I think it's ultimately because they didn't love it. It wasn't connected to something bigger. And so I do think there is like a deep, deep for me, like, and and Bo and I talk about this, like, what is the thing? Like, I, I believe too, fundamentally, like this idea of like shining a light 
on on communities, on people, on work that is underrepresented and often under acknowledged has been like a, a deep, deep driver for me. And so I think it is. It's it's the love of the work. It's the love of the people, of the communities that we serve, of also just the space. Like, right, I, I started a scholarship a couple years ago to com- combining it with the, the work we have in Case Board called Lift As You Climb to help women who are getting into the real estate business. Because you see, I just saw how powerful it was to transform. Like, I just, I think I'm embracing a vision and, and a commitment to, to be a vehicle to help, like, be, help other people in this industry, especially because it, it is a platform that lets you get to anywhere you want to be. And I I wake up every day just so grateful, even on the hardest days, that I get the opportunity to do this. Talk to me about the difference between the way you raise a 14-year-old and the way that you're now raising this three-year-old. Because it, the first one is always different than the second. By the way, I, ne- I never made it to the second one. I don't know how anyone had the energy for that. Take me, though to the three-year-old. Is, is it wildly different? Like, are all the things that you used to get upset about now just adorable? Uh, yeah. And his brothers remind me all the time. They're like, he is clearly your favorite. He tells me I'm his best girl. And I'm like, this is why you're here, friend. Like, this is why. <laughs> He's, yes, it's great. And it's. I feel like I'm enjoying it a lot. I mean, it's 28, you know, um, with the first one. And so I just, it's been a different journey. And I feel like we're just savoring it a lot more, knowing that, you know, he's, he's the end of the... <laughs> the end of the, the uh, train for me. So like being able to just take it all in, <laughs> like, the, the silly things are much more, you know, he, yeah, it's great. It's been a lot of fun. And you listen a lot more, I think in some ways, all the lessons from, from earlier. Uh, he's got a lot of people who tell him what to do. So then he tells everybody else what to do, which is, yeah. I want to talk about the empire builders. So this was a podcast that I've been listening to. It's the voice in my head. And I, I think it's one of the best podcasts out there right now for a lot of the discussions we're having. Why did you start that? Like, why why did you want to be a part of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes all the way back to, to the beginning of that group, right? When we started as a mastermind group, I think one from all over the country coming together, but really coming together uh, in a lot of ways out of loneliness as like as women, as entrepreneurs, as moms, as wives. Like, there was a lot, and in our own communities, sometimes there's just a gap of like we're building things that sometimes don't translate on the playground. And so you, we walked into these rooms, like, right, we were all together in a mastermind room realizing like, hey, I'm not the only one who feels this way and required us to get on airplanes, right, fly over the country to get together and just be with people who could not only like see you in that way, but also push you uh, as as a mom pushed me to like, what, where do I want to be? Do I have to be saying yes to everything? And what am I saying no to? That that was a really big, big piece. And so that out of that sort of one was Amplify, which is now Her Best Life, which is a conference that really brings together now has touched thousands of women. And, and to watch that imprint of women just gain community and know that they're not alone as entrepreneurs, as women, as people who want to build these big lives, but you know build biz- businesses to create these big lives. And then that sort of became a really much more powerful platform to now like, right, hundreds of thousands of, of not just women, but like people who listen and to those to the to sort of the lessons of that journey, the struggles of that journey. So it's been I love sort of the evolution of like this small group of 11 women to this like face to face of hundreds. And now this thousands through the podcast. Um, I love having women come up to me everywhere I go at KW, just industry who who tell me like something that they've heard, something that has changed their life, something that they thought they were alone in. I think maybe you said this, Jason. I'll give it you credit if you didn't. That which is deeply personal is also universal. Does that sound familiar? I feel like you, you have such wisdom all the time. But it was that for me was powerful because sometimes we think we're going through these experiences that are so unique and sometimes really painful to us. 
And when you own it, you realize, God, there's actually a world of people who are struggling with the same thing. So I think the podcast for me has been just a great way to open that up. So uh, if you were looking back on all this and, and you're still right in the thick of it, I mean, you're, you're going strong on all these things. If you're sitting down with the 28-year-old Kimber and can only give one piece of advice to her at that time, what do you tell her? You know, I tell her to go for it. Like I am, a, I have played really safe in a lot of things and sometimes that works really well. And, you know, I think that that has been a big part of my journey, but I would tell her like, go fa- fail faster. Like, it's okay. Like, right. You're not gonna break it. That's someone told me that when I have a first baby, you're not gonna break them, hopefully. Right. <laughs> like, so like, just keep going. That I think this piece that like, just do it, like do the thing that you thought you couldn't do that you thought you didn't know. And I think for women, especially like we don't put our hats in. I didn't, I didn't raise my hand for a regional director role. Cause I was like, ah. like on one hand, I was like, I got a lot going on. Another, it was like, I'm not qualified to do that. And the reality is that I actually was qualified, but it took somebody else, actually my circle saying, you could do this. You could do this. And honestly, as our businesses and my business ventures have grown, it's because now there's a confidence, but it was because somebody else was behind me saying, you got this, you could do this. You should say yes. And so it would be say yes, say yes more, uh, and then figure it out. Like, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and then the how woke up. I love that. You know, look, the MREA podcast is all about finding the most powerful models that are driving the most successful people in the industry today. And there's no question that the model for how you look at the year, then how you look at your month, then how you look at the night before, which looks at the next day and the next week, waking up before everybody. I think the model here is how do you manage your time? Win the morning, win the day, such that you can live this wildly large life. Kimber, it sounds like without that, none of this would work. Yeah. And give grace. Like there are times I don't win the day. There are times I don't, but I find you always win a moment, right? Like you can find a moment, like so much of this is mindset. And so I do think like, give yourself the grace to start or people say to me, how do you balance it out? I don't balance is a lie. Like it's not, it doesn't work. Like, so when the faster you embrace some of these constructs, that then allow you to say like, I actually did win a moment. I, the morning was a hot mess this morning, but you know, like I got up extra early and I did so, like, you can find it and then celebrate that and then hit after it the next day. Like that's, it's a big part. Grace has been one of my saving, saving graces. Saving graces. No, I love it. All right, Kimber, you are about to enter the lightning round. This is where we ask you in very, very quick succession to tell us a few things about you. Number one, what is your favorite food? Oh, um, chocolate chip cookies. I stopped the lightning round. I'm so glad you said that. I too love chocolate chip cookies. Now, do you do you want a, a, any kind of nut in the chocolate chip cookie, or are you just a purist? Uh, most of them I'm a purist. I could do a nut. I'm not bad, you know. But I literally Peloton so that I can eat chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Same. By the way, with walnuts. So if anyone's sending anything here, we'll take it. All right, number two. What's your favorite color? Oh, uh, purple. Your favorite sound. Ooh. Favorite sound, uh, water. Like I love water. I love the sound of water. Like rushing. I love to look at the water. I watch sunrises. Sorry, that was not lightning, but water. <laughs> give Give me a book that has been transformative for you that everyone listening to this should read. Uh, I just finished The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, and it it's powerful. It's been really powerful. I there's a lot in it. I would say read it. Love that. Name a podcast that you really like, and it can't be any of the ones that you host. Oh my goodness. Can I say, I mean, I do think the color of money that, uh, right. Our team is, is really, I love it. It's been good. I like that they're having hard hitting conversations and I think you should check the new one and you should check it out. Favorite movie. Oh, that's a lot of TV, Jason. Uh, love and basketball. 
It's a good one. All right. That's all for us. Kimber, you inspire me. The way that you've attacked your life and the way that you attack business and the way that you've loved through all of it, I find wildly inspiring. And I don't say that to very many people. When you're the voice in my head, I'm a better person. And that's the truth. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on this journey. Thank you. Kimber, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. She is so powerful. I, I Literally, and I say this at the end of almost every episode, it's kind of becoming a thing that you're all texting me about, but I could listen to Kimber all day. And the reason I could is because the things she says, they just make sense to me. Like when you're sitting there and you're listening to her and she's casting this tale of how she knew she wanted to help people because of the social work. So what better way to help people than real estate? Like that hit me and it resonated with me. We help people all day long. And then she said, and I knew that I wanted to grow wealth. What, what better way to grow wealth than real estate? Friends, we're stepping over a dollar to pick up a nickel every time we don't take advantage of those investment deals. And when we're not focused on our wealth plans and we only think about our business plans, we don't get wealthy. And then she talks about her family and how she's going to get them all going in their life. And she can tell you exactly where each of them are and then what events were important and what allows that to be the flexibility of the real estate business. I sound like a broken record because when I listen to Kimber, here's what I don't hear. I don't hear a bunch of obstacles that are really difficult to overcome. I hear I got into the greatest industry in the world that offers me the ability to get everything that I want on the timetable that I'm willing to want it. You know how unique that is? Like, have you ever looked up and you're in the right place at the right time, in the right industry, at the right moment, with the right people around you? Because if, if you haven't, let me just tell you, it's really rare. And let me assure you this. If you're waking up today within the sound of my voice and somehow you manage to get into the real estate business in the greatest single time to be in it, surrounded by the greatest people, then the gift is already yours. I just want you to wake up, rip off the wrapping paper, open the box, and jump right in. The gift that we have, friends, is not behind us. It's right in front of us. And there it is. That wraps another episode. Friends, I don't know what you're taking out of this. I really don't. I'll tell you what I want you to be taking out of it, which is these are the people that are having tremendously big lives. And the reason it's happening is because they're setting up the models and systems to do just that. Gary Keller told me that leadership is teaching people how to think so that they do the things they need to do when they need to do them, so that ultimately they get the things they want when they wanna have them. And that's what I want for you. You're all leaders, but it begins with leading ourselves. If you're enjoying this podcast, I want you to click the subscribe button anywhere that you get your podcasts. We wanna be the voice in your head every single week, and every week we're dropping new content. We also send out a newsletter at the conclusion of every show to make sure that you get the highest points and the models and systems that were discussed. So if you want to sign up, I need your name and your email address. Head over to the millionaireagentpodcast.com. Millionaireagentpodcast.com. Enter your name and your email address, and every week that newsletter will be in your box. Friends, you just went on a journey. I hope that what happens between now and the next time we meet is absolutely wonderful for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The views, thoughts, and opinions of the guest represent those of the guest and not KWRI and its affiliates and should not be construed as financial, economic, legal, tax, or other advice. This podcast is provided without any warranty or guarantee of its accuracy, completeness, timeliness, or results from using the information.